BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Rediscover our fascinating city this summer on a walking tour from the Chicago Architecture Center, now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Our entertaining and expertly trained docents will guide you through the Chicago you've been longing to explore, from magnificent downtown architecture to awe-inspiring neighborhood gems. If it's worth seeing, we'll take you there. Get tickets at architecture.org forward slash tours. The stories of the city begin at the CAC. Let's get this party started. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, 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 August 27th is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. And of course, today's show is brought to you by our good friends, at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, you know what time it is. Time for that song of the day. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think I'll go back to the 60s. How about that, T? Big surprise there. Hmm. A little group named Buffalo Springfield back in 1967. There was a riot in California, in Los Angeles, and Sunset Strip, and they came out with this song that was number one. Here we go. <clears throat> Uh, something happening here. Wow, wow. What it is ain't exactly clear. <laughs> it never gets old? I don't know. That's a question. Your Ben Jarofsky show starts now. <laughs> it is Thursday, August 27th, and live from Ben Zanuck. In my apartment, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's another cannabis conversation with Lisa Solomon and Chris Crane. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Waiting for Donald Thursday. And here's why. (laughs) Big night tonight. Donnie Trump giving his coronation speech. Yeah, I know it's a convention, but as far as MAGA is concerned, it's a coronation. He's their emperor. His declaration is their command. Who needs an election? Just bow to Emperor Donnie. That's MAGA. 
<laughs> that's MAGA. <laughs> oh, we love you, Donnie. Whoa, I'm putting my MAGA hat on. Ooh, I'm a MAGA hatter. Woo. No collusion. <laughs> oh, MAGA, you guys are a trip, man. You love that guy. I don't know what you see in a MAGA, but you love him. He's your guy. I'll save the trouble of uh, anticipation. I don't need a crystal ball. I know what Donnie's going to say. He's going to say law and order. He's going to say, I'm the only one who could save you from lawlessness and hellish apocalyptic gloom and doom. Thugs, looters, be scared. Be very scared. That's the whole thing about the Republicans right now. They made a mess of the economy. They made a mess of the approach to the virus. They've done absolutely nothing to help public schools, to reduce crime, to helping the common man. They were going to get clobbered. So they sat there and they go, what can we do to win this election? Now, remember, one more time, folks, they don't need to win a majority of the voters because in this crazy system we have, you can vote. The majority can lose if you win the Electoral College. So what do we need to win the Electoral College? I know. Scare the hell out of white people. And that's what they're going to do. Be scared. Be very scared. I'm getting scared. (laughs) Oh, God. It's working. <laughs> oh no, Dr. D, I'm going to vote for him. Oh, look at that hand, it's trembling as he approaches. Here's Dennis's hand in the voting booth. I'm going to vote for Biden Harris. No, 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 I'm scared. I'm scared. By the way, everybody, I got to post this picture I took at Dennis's. D, do I have permission to post that on uh, social media? Yeah, I mean, the picture sure. I took of you. Whatever. He's got this full beard. He looks like Man Mountain Mike. All right. <laughs> Since he went on vacation, he's like, uh, yeah. he's like one of those baseball players for the Boston Red Sox. Remember those guys? Like, I'm a lumberjack. Oh, it's what I am. WBEZ and other stations that uh, can potentially hire me. Don't look at that. I have a headshot. It's nice and everything. Don't don't look at that one. WBZ. Yeah. Hey, hold on. Here's the, the the phone call right now, D. Uh, just stay for the rest of the show before you uh, answer it. All right. Anyway, be scared. Be very scared. Lock away your women. Get a gun. Protect your house. Your property's under siege. Only Donnie can protect you. It's like that scene from Blazing Saddles where Cleavon Little rides into town. He's the black sheriff. And he says, where are the white women at? And everybody's, oh, Sorry, millennials, for that ancient reference. I know nobody knows what I'm talking about, except for Charlie Myerson, who may be listening. Another old geezers who remember the 70s. Anyway, yeah, he's not back listening. to Trump. <laughs> okay. D, you know, you know Blazing Saddles, don't you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we clean my little rides into town, and where are the white women at? Anyway, that's uh, like if they could figure out a way of getting Cleavon Little at their convention, he died, but they could figure out a way of channeling him, they would do it. So anyway, uh, back to Trump and law and order. I just want to point out, folks, that most of this lawlessness and disorder has come under Trump's reign. But of course, truth plays no role in MAGA America. It's only what you feel or what Donald tells you to feel. It may change day to day. All you have to do is bow down. I'm used to this, folks. As I always say, I've been covering Chicago politics since 1981. And I've watched Alderman just flip-flop day to day. Whatever the mayor says. The mayor wakes up. Mayor Daly wakes up and goes, you know what? I think the sky is gray today, even if the sun is out. And the Alderman goes, the sky is gray. 
I made fun of aldermen for years for that. And now I'm like, this nation is under an aldermanic spell that is even beyond anything uh, I've ever seen in the Chicago City Council. Backlash politics, folks, scare white people into voting for the white man. I first saw it back in 1983 when Harold Washington was running for mayor right here in Chicago. Thousands and thousands of lifelong Democrats, white people, voted for the Republican Bernie Epton. He came so close to winning because white people were scared. There were all these stories like, be scared. All these like uh, pamphlets about rapists in the street and crime rising and businesses fleeing. Be scared. Be very, very scared of Harold Washington. It's like the Republicans are spreading this theory, which is so bizarre, that Joe Biden is somehow behind the protesters, the looters, the Antifa crowd. I, I, that is so preposterous. I mean, I know a few Antifa people, you know, a few. I know a lot of lefties, a few extreme lefties. They hate Joe Biden. They may hate Joe Biden even more than they hate Donnie Trump, if that's possible. And they're always mad at me because I plan to vote for Joe Biden. Ben, your Democrats have sold us out again. Ben, you know, they have a point. I must confess, D, they have a point. But the notion that you can blame Joe Biden for the behavior of Antifa is like, I don't know, blaming Donald Trump for Kyle Rittenhouse. Actually, there's a lot of credibility to that last point. Rittenhouse, of course, is a 17-year-old from Antioch who thought it was a good idea to drive up to Kenosha, just across the state line, with a loaded rifle and shoot some people. Killed two people. Because lawlessness and murder is how you maintain law and order. I just want you folks to know that Rittenhouse is a Trump supporter. He wears the MAGA hat, worships Trump on social media, went to a Trump rally in Iowa, has pictures of him in the front row. So you could make the argument that this is blessed by Trump nation. Just saying that's what Trump would be doing. Can you imagine what they'd be saying if God forbid, I don't even want to say it. I don't even want to say it. I'm not even going to say it, D. I'm not going to say it because my, my beloved Bernie Sanders is always trounced and trashed by everybody on both sides. But if it had been a Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders supporter, could you imagine what MAGA would be saying? Anyway, Rittenhouse went up to Kenosha. He loves police, so they love him back. They gave him water. They didn't arrest him as he walked down the street with a rifle in his hand. I got to read the Sun-Times editorials. I got my issues with the Sun-Times editorial page these days. They're going way too right for me. I thought they were supposed to be sort of like the liberal paper in town. Can get into that a little while later. But I got to give them hats off to whoever. They never say who writes these editorials, Steve. But this editorial said it all. I'll read it to you. It's a thing, a meme. Make-believe soldiers strap on their big guns to show who's boss. This editorial today's bright one. Home delivered, as always. Hold on. Yeah. Wait, are you wrapping a present? (laughs) It's called a newspaper. And then there's the horror show. When three people are shot, apparently by Rittenhouse, two of them fatally, one body goes still almost instantly. After the shooting, Rittenhouse is walking down the street as police vehicles turn a corner and head his way. He raises his arm. Is he surrendering? Is he saying hello? We don't know. But neither do the cops who roll right by him, though his big bad gun is in plain sight. Maybe he didn't look like what they were looking for. And they asked the question, what if Rittenhouse, and we know some people hate this question, had been black? Oh, yeah. 
you just imagine. Already, MAGA America is coming to Rittenhouse's defense. Tucker Carlson says he was just taking law into his own hands because the Democrats somehow, one more time, it's Joe Biden's fault. It's Kamala Harris's fault. How preposterous, the more I think about it. Like Kamala Harris got trashed, trashed in the Democratic primary. Remember, D, for being a cop? Tulsi Gabbard hit her with that marijuana question. We got Chris Crane coming on today. He's going to be talking about it. Will even Kamala Harris be a, uh, a good thing or a bad thing in terms of legalizing marijuana on the federal level? But this notion, they're putting it out. MAG is putting it out that somehow or other, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are responsible for lawlessness. And so the kid from Antioch with the gun he, it was okay to Tucker Carlson that he went out and shot two people. And you watch, it starts, that's Trump follows. This is how Trump does it. He sees how, how far he could push the envelope. So right now they're quiet about the shootings, about the two killings in Kenosha. They're kind of quiet about Rittenhouse. You know, they're like, well, they're not really saying anything about it. But they let Tucker Carlson put that stuff out there and see how popular it was with MAGA. Next thing you know, they'll probably be inviting the kid on the campaign trail. Like the crazy McCloskeys were at the uh, convention on Monday night. Yeah, man. Law and order. Lawlessness and disorder. I do not know, by the way, D, how Tucker Carlson keeps his job. The dude like says the most incendiary things. Any lefty, any liberal says anything remotely like a boom off the air right there. But the Tuckster, he's got his job. That's because the right really takes care of its own in a way that the left doesn't. That's a whole other story. I want to say thank goodness for the basketball players in the NBA. We talked about it last night with Vincent Norman. Uh, after this show, you can go check that out if uh, you missed it. At both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. You hear that, WBEZ? This kid is good. This kid is good. I'm just saying, this kid is good. He knows the stuff. Oh, God, could you imagine if BEZ offers you a job of being a bidding war with them? I mean, we've talked about if if they would do that for like three years now. It's never happening, dude. Could you imagine the bidding war? Uh, Dennis, uh, I'll buy you lunch once a week at that place on Montrose that you like. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes, thank goodness for the, uh, the players in the NBA. Uh, a vast majority of them, black uh, black basketball players. It's the one prominent establishment, the NBA, that is filled with black voices. And it's not just a handful of black voices that the Republican Party props up, like magnifies. I always, I used to very cynically uh, tell uh, the young black kids, I like, call, hey, you want to make some money? <laughs> just become a Republican. They'll take care of you. They'll give you lots of money just to... Say whatever it is that they want. You just read their scripts. But uh, no, we're talking about uh, black men who pretty much speak for, I would say, the overwhelming majority of black citizens in this country. And it's really moving uh, to watch the response and reaction of many of the commentators and the players uh, in the NBA and uh, in the in the aftermath of Jacob Blake's shooting. The uh, perhaps paralyzed, he's paralyzed for life, I guess. Uh, in uh, in Kenosha, you see grown men crying. Uh, Robert Ory. These these I know my uh, lefty, real lefty listeners don't follow sports, but these are take, trust me when I tell you these are very prominent uh, NBA players, retired and active. Robert Ory, Chris Webber, Kenny Smith, LeBron James, 
Doc Rivers, the great Doc Rivers, coach of the L.A. Clippers, went to Proviso East High School from Maywood. Love Doc Rivers. D, I'm going to conjure up my inner Dave Gloetz. Uh, Dennis, could you play Doc Rivers for me? It's just so sad. Uh, you know, it, what stands out to me is um, just just watching the Republican revention, uh, convention and this, they're spewing this fear, right? Like, all you hear Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, we're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. Um, we've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's it's amazing to me why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. That is some powerful stuff, folks. And if you haven't seen it, he starts off, Doc Rivers, again, coach of the L.A. Clippers, roughly my age, an older guy. He's been around a while, a little younger than me, Doc. I won't put you in my group, but he's up there. He's been around a while. So he's uh, sitting there at, in front of the microphone with his mask on because they're practice good social distancing protocol, good COVID prevention protocol. And then he just gets so overwhelmed, he takes the mask and he's crying. His eyes are welling up when he says that. He builds a crescendo. And that challenge, that question, that that declaration he made, I believe, and Vincent uh, also, he believes it as well, Vincent Norman, who was my guest last night, that that really inspired a lot of the players in the NBA to take the stand they did and to declare that they were going to boycott yesterday. They just weren't going to play. They weren't going to put on an exhibition to entertain America while America was being so violent toward black people. And it was a very moving moment, uh, but it was also a very compelling moment. Like, how do you deal? How do you confront that contradiction that Doc Rivers is talking about? articulating how do you deal with that and i gotta tell you folks the answer and the solution is not going to come during tonight's speech at the republican convention it's not going to come from donald trump donald trump doesn't care about that contradiction donald trump is interested in one thing getting reelected, and he's going to try to get reelected by ripping away at the wounds, by pouring salt into them, by pitting black people against white people and dark-skinned immigrants against everybody. This is what got him elected in 2016. This is what can probably is his only hope to get reelected in 2020. He could talk all he wants about law and order, but it's under his reign that race relations have really been aggravated to the point where a man like Doc Rivers, a prominent coach in the NBA, breaks down with that declaration. This has happened in the last four years. I know we have 400 years of history building up to this, but it's like this is the first presidency I've seen in my lifetime where the president intentionally was trying to take us back 
So now Donnie's got his fans in the MAGA taken to the street with guns in his hand, shooting people while Tucker Carlson cheers him on. Yeah, of course he's cheering Tucker. Scaring white people into voting for Trump is the only way Donald's going to get reelected. We got a great show today, everybody. Chris Crane will be here, president and co-founder for Ventures and Mission Dispensaries. Uh, we'll have a cannabis conversation. Yeah, he wrote a very interesting column in Forbes about Kamala Harris and the issue of uh, legalized marijuana on the federal level. So we'll be talking about that. Plenty of political talk ahead of us. Uh, and by the way, the second interview of the day, deal to promote that. Troy LaRabier will be joining us, uh, president of the Chicago Associate Principals Association, always has interesting things to say about national politics, local politics, school politics, race relations. Sometimes Troy is, you could just like ask him one question, he just riffs. You know what I'm saying, D? Troy, when it comes to uh, riffing uh, on the issues of the day, is sort of like me playing air guitar. Oh, awful? Yeah. <laughs> I think Troy's pretty good. What are you talking about? That was well done. Can I just say something? Hey, P-E-Z, did you see, did you see how quick he was? Yeah, it was excellent. Yeah, anyway, so Troy will be joining us as well. But before we do that, it, before we do any of that, young man from all, the man that Troy, Chris Crane, and Doc Rivers uh, called Dr. Doobie with the news. I'm not a doctor. How's it going, everybody? By the way, you can download our interview with Troy LaRavier by 7 o'clock tonight at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. Ben, don't talk about WBEZ. <laughs> How about WTTW? Sure. Hey, guys, come on. Hire me. I live right up the road. All right, let's find out what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. Once again, no public event scheduled for our Democratic Illinois Governor, J.B. Pritzker. So once again, and please keep listening, don't tune out. Once again, our Illinois Republicans will have the floor for our local news segment today. Seriously, keep listening. That's right. Today's Ben Jarofsky show is going right wing, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, moving governor, on right, moving on right. Sorry. <laughs> and you know, Governor Pritzker can sit back and enjoy the fruits of his labor a little bit today, because all of those COVID nineteen press briefings seem to be getting through to our stubborn Illinois friends of the conservative persuasion. As you know, it's day four of the Republican National Convention, and tonight the president himself, Donald Trump, will be speaking. A thousand Republicans are expected to gather tonight in Washington to hear him. A handful of Illinois Republicans have been invited to the White House for his speech. You know, the ones he hasn't completely alienated yet. It's a small list, very small list. And while there is a good chance the president won't be wearing one, a few of our Illinois RNC representatives are stressing the importance of attending tonight's event while wearing a face mask. Face coverings. Face coverings. Before we go any further, Ben, what are the odds on Trump wearing a face covering for his speech tonight? Uh, I would say uh, about one million to one. Uh, he is not going to be wearing a face covering. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, is, he's got this thing about face coverings, which uh, it, he thinks it looks unmanly. He's very worried about that. You know, this is a guy with a comb over and everything. He doesn't look, it, it, he thinks it, it doesn't make him look young and vibrant. And it's like a lot of people, like I said many times, D with bike helmets. Oh, I don't want to wear one. You know? So 
uh, I don't think there's any chance that Donald Trump will be wearing a face mask. He could prove me wrong. He could come out with a face mask with like, you know, uh, we hate Joe Biden or something like that. But uh, no, I don't think the I think, uh, folks, safe bet in Vegas. Donald Trump not wearing a face mask. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Rachel Hinton. No one knows for sure whether President Donald Trump will wear a mask when he walks on the South Lawn of the White House on Thursday to deliver his speech, accepting the Republican nomination for president. But at least one of the invited Illinois delegates said he would. Richard Porter is his name. He's a Republican national committeeman in Illinois. And while he won't be protected from insanely one-sided political rhetoric or some weirdo with a MAGA hat calling him a pussy, he will be using his brain <laughs> and doing the best thing he can possibly do to protect himself and others from contracting uh, the COVID-19 wearing a mask. Here's the quote from Richard Porter. Quote, I'll be wearing a mask. See, Benny said it right there. <laughs> He's going to wear one. That's what he said. If he shows up. But yes, this Richard Porter may be smarter than the average Illinois Republican bear because according to the Chicago Sun-Times on Wednesday, Richard Porter was still deciding if he wants to fly to Washington, <laughs> D.C. to attend the event or stay in, uh, stay in Chicago for a small watch party that he organized himself in River North. Uh, now, Porter was among the 300 or so delegates who were in Charlotte, North Carolina on Monday to nominate Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. Like all delegates, he took an in-home COVID-19 test before heading to Charlotte and was tested again when he arrived. Porter also wore a tracking device handed out to uh, delegates to trace contacts if someone gets sick. If he does decide to stay home to attend the small in-person convention watch party with about 40 GOP activists, Porter said the gathering will comply with all Chicago rules on masks and social distancing. And if he goes to Washington instead, the committeeman said he imagines, quote, that most people, if not everybody, will be wearing masks. But if not, he's not going to sweat it. Porter said, quote, I think the risk of infection generally is low. <laughs> OK, this is uh, a classic case of Republicans being all over the map. Now, when I'm all over the map, I pretty much admit it to you, right? You go, well, you know, D, I'm not quite, I'm like a flag blowing on the breeze in this one. But this guy Porter, man, I don't even know the dude. He's all over the map with this one. He's like, well, I'm going to wear a mask, but I don't have to wear a mask. Everybody will be wearing a mask, but even if they don't, I'll be okay. Well, wait a minute. Hold on, Porter. If it's important to wear a mask, I'm just trying to follow the logic here, but everybody's not wearing a mask, why then will you be okay? <laughs> ben, you know, <laughs> you're trying to apply logic to illogic. You're trying to apply some kind of sense of order to me being all over the map. Because here's the deal, folks. The Republicans quoted in this story are by and large moderate Republicans. Steve, are you gonna be reading more from this story? Uh, well, yes. Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to, this is called pre-show planning in the middle yeah, of the show. Don't, don't railroad my thing here. Uh, okay, so I, I should let Dennis go a little further with this, but what Porter is doing, he's trying to appeal to suburban voters who believe, as they should believe, that the best way to avoid either giving or getting the virus is to wear a mask. And yet, 
He doesn't want to contradict with the official line of the Republican Party, which is that masks are unnecessary. The COVID is a hoax. It's something that the Democrats and the Chinese have cooked up in order to undercut Donald Trump. So he's like, well, I'll be wearing a mask, but it won't be needed. Uh, I'll be wearing a mask, but uh, it's not really necessary. Dude, you're all over the map. And you know why you are? Because you disagree with the central policy of the Republican Party, or at least you feel compelled to disagree with that central policy, which is that masks aren't necessary, but you don't have the guts to say it. All right, on to Aaron Del Mar. He's a Trump delegate and a Palatine Township Republican committeeman. He said he noticed that some at the convention weren't wearing masks, but he and his family have been doing so. Del Mar said, quote, I would hope that everyone there would be taking strong social precautions and distancing. Cook County Republican Chairman Sean Morrison said he has no problem with the face coverings, although he doesn't want the use of masks, quote, mandated by law. There's too many other things in life and too many other things that are going on with people, people that are unemployed or not working and businesses that are being shut down and things of that nature. What the hell does that even mean? I mean, what the hell? That's okay. One more time, folks. I'm going to translate Republicanism for you. Take notes. I'm going to help you understand these guys. They're so full of it. All right. So, again, Sean Morrison, Cook County Republican chairman, he's he's worried about losing every seat in Illinois because they're so whacked out the Republican Party on the issue of masks. He's worried about that. So he says, I have no problem with face coverings, though he doesn't want them mandated by law. Why? Well, first of all, I don't know if they're mandated anywhere uh, by law. I guess I'm, I'm trying to think. Is it illegal anywhere in the state of Illinois where they can arrest you or lock you up? We will lock you up uh, if you don't wear a mask. I know you could get uh, a bar could get fined. So I guess that's what he's talking about. So what? No punishment whatsoever. Morrison, is that what you're saying? Yeah, let's just, you know, trust people to wear the mask. So doesn't want to get too far away from the Trumpsters on this. Doesn't want to get too far away from MAGA, MAGA's official position, which is that somehow or other, this is what? A loss of liberty if we wear a mask. But at the same time, he's a little worried about looking like he's a whacked out MAGA hatter, which would turn off the people in the suburbs. So he's trying to have it both ways. And then he does this unbelievable, but really, there's so many other problems out there right now. Why are we even talking about masks? Because, dude, you know as well as I do, the fastest, most efficient way of trying to reduce the threat of the virus is to wear a mask. But your party, like, won't sign on to that because you think there's something unmanly and uncool about wearing masks. Like, you guys are cool anyway. Like, in a million years, Donald Trump, I guess when Donald Trump looks in the mirror, he sees a young man with a full head of hair who's really slim and trim, like a like Robert Redford in 1968 or something like that. That's what he sees. So, like, wearing a mask, that would be uncool. I don't look cool. I'm not going to wear a mask. It's so weird. The Republican Party is so weird in so many ways. 
I'm going to refrain now, D, from talking about Jerry Falwell Jr. and the pool boy. Please I'm do. going to refrain from that. Please we do. discussed that yesterday, okay? I wonder what Sean Morrison's position is on J- I wish the Sun-Times had asked him about uh, Mr. Morrison, what's your uh, thoughts on Jerry Falwell Jr. and the pool boy? Sorry, D. Anyway, that's pretty preposterous. I give a award to anybody who could figure out what the hell Jerry, uh, Jerry Morrison, Sean Morrison is saying. And that's second part of the quote. All right, Ben Jarofsky, it's time to throw you in the hypothetical hot seat here Uh-oh. for the sake of a decent podcast segment and today's conservative theme. Let's pretend you're a Trump supporting Illinois politician. Remember, this is for the podcast. All right, so let's do it. Okay. All, all right. right. So for you, the podcast. you've been invited to watch the president give a speech at the White House in the middle of a global pandemic. Do you fly to Washington to attend or not? Well, wait a minute. So, but I'm pretending I'm a MAGA hatter. Yes, the one thing we actually did pre-show prep on. Yes, you pretend you're a MAGA hatter. <laughs> I, I forgot. Jesus. That. You know what? I forgot. <laughs> I forgot the pre-show prep. Uh oh, I'm in trouble. I hope I don't say anything that contradicts what I said an hour ago. D. Yeah, what the hell? Who cares? Maybe I will anyway. Uh, if I'm a MAGA hatter, uh, you know. Now you're asking me to go into the brain of a MAGA hatter, D. Hold on, let me just take the trip. I'm in the brain. It's it's a confined space. Not a lot of room in this brain. Sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, MAGA hatter. Yeah, I'd get on that airplane. I'd sit next to somebody. I'd share a cigarette with them, share a joint. I guess you can't smoke on an airplane. Uh, Yeah, because I don't believe in the virus. I'm a MAGA hatter. Or it's a hoax. It's being fostered by the Democratic Party to undercut Donnie Trump. So, no. Yeah, I'd get on that plane. Mm-mm-mm. I'd sit down there. I'd share peanuts with my neighbor. Yeah, share peanuts. I'd put peanuts in his mouth. Here, open your mouth. <laughs> I'd put the peanut in there because I don't believe in it. Then I'd go there and I'd put my arm around all the other people in the Rose Garden. You know? But, like, share a drink. I'll share a drink with somebody. Here you go. Let's have a drink. So, yeah, I'm MAGA. I'm going all MAGA, D. And then I'd have raw steak, which I was... I wouldn't even use a plate. I would just eat the raw steak, share it with my fellow MAGA. So, D, nope, I'm not aware. It's a hoax. Donald Trump says it's a hoax. And I believe everything Donald Trump tells me. So, no mask for me, D. All right. That was fun, huh? Little uh, hypothetical question there. Yeah. I'm, I'm really like into being a MAGA hatter now. Oh, wow. I'm going to record that and uh, just play it over and over again every day. How about that? You know, Jay, they make a lot of sense. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Brienne on the live stream chat. Which airline allows you to smoke joints? I would be a lifelong customer. <laughs> a good point. I just saw a movie where uh, with a couple went into the bathroom. Remember that? Movie? What's that movie called? The, oh, uh, where a couple goes into a bathroom. Hmm. What is that movie? <laughs> in an airplane. <laughs> oh, my God. help me out, uh, listeners. It's the one where um, Rachel McAdams is the passenger, and she works for a hotel. And this evil guy sits next to her and says, "If you don't help us kill this." The head of Homeland Security staying in your hotel will kill your father. Whatever movie that was. There was a scene in a bathroom. And I believe the movie was the called Red Eye, 2005. How did you know that? The internet. Seriously. How did, did you look it up? It's this thing I'm, I'm looking at you on right now. The computer. I'm, I can't even get the words out. <laughs> Can't, sorry, BZ. I cannot let you take this guy from me. It's going to be a fight. If you come for him, 
Two meals a week, D, at that restaurant on Montrose. Two meals a week. Not one, two. The restaurant is Slim's. It's a fantastic restaurant. All right. (laughs) Moving on. In scene. We're done acting now. Okay, here we go. Illinois House Republican leader Jimmy D, Jim Durkin, not to be confused with Illinois Democratic Senator Dickie D, Dick Durbin. Republican. (laughs) I I, I got those mixed up for a long time. I know. It's hard. Yeah. Republican Jim Durkin was asked his thoughts on conventions during a pandemic. Durkin said, quote, Masks are the right thing to do, and he hopes science is able to prevail over politics. Quote, I've seen this before, and this is about winning the White House. This is about winning seats. I hope science at the end of the day is able to prevail and that we will be able to function as a society where we can at least start getting back to our cherished normal way of life. But there's no way around it that it's that this is going to be a major. This is going to be a major issue in the campaigns. Everything is politicized, every small thing, every large thing. And unfortunately, that is the nature of the DNC and the RNC. And sadly, the pandemic has been politicized. Durkin said he wears a mask whenever he's out in public. By the way, Jim Durkin not invited to tonight's speech at the White House. Why? Well, it probably has to do with that time back in February this year when Durkin verbally body slammed the president for pardoning former Illinois Governor Rob Lagojevich's prison sentence. I'm never going to be able to figure out how the president's uh, messages nor the decision making he does. Uh, That's something that he's going to have to explain. But I think he needs to explain to people of Illinois who saw a governor destroy uh, the integrity of his office, but also did some very, very terrible things to the finances of the state. Uh, I hope that he he can make a plausible explanation of why this is appropriate, because I haven't seen anything yet. I guess he's not concerned about the state of Illinois for uh, next November, so... Yep. All right. Thank you. Slam! You remember that, Ben? <laughs> uh, wow. There's so much. To, yes, I do remember that. There's so much to unpack because you brought in the Rob Blagojevich thing. Uh, Rob Blagojevich right now is uh, making campaign appeals uh, for various Republicans. So what Jim Durkin was talking about was so February, D. When Rob Blagojevich got out of jail, when he got out of prison, he said he's a Trumpocrat. I want a tangent here within a tangent, D, but I'm, I wasn't expecting you to play the Blago thing, but this is on my mind. He said he was a Trumpocrat, which meant that uh, even though he still had his, what, New Deal values, he was going to go for Trump because Donald Trump uh, got him out of prison. So, yeah, I guess I can understand that, D. I mean, Donald Trump did get him out of prison. But now... Rob Bogoyevich is like, oh, you know, that's not good enough. I'm going to go one step further. So he gave this interview the other day where he was talking about how this Democratic Party of today is not like the Democratic Party of old. It's become too far radical, too radical. So now he's really just reading from the Trump page. So I just find it so painfully hypocritical for Rob Bogoyevich, who emerged from prison thanks to a, a the president commuting his sentence He came out denouncing the laws, the harsh laws that we have that put people, lock away people for so long. He came out criticizing them. I thought he was going to be a voice for criminal justice reform. Now he's signing on to the law and order party, okay, in quotes, that's going to throw more people in prison by scaring the hell out of everybody against protesters and getting us so afraid we got to lock people up and take away and, and, and enforce bails, more rigid bails. We need we, higher bails to keep people in jail, get us scared, throw away more rights. 
So it's just interesting how Rob Bogoyevich has now become more of a Republican than Jim Durkin. And back to Durkin. That that full quote that you read, D, just goes to show you, you get more of the quotes on the online version than on the, uh, I'm just throwing that out there. My beloved Bright One, which home delivered every day, by the way, I urge everybody to get a subscription, uh, did not have the full quote where he uh, was doing a pox in both houses. Durkin, you can't have it both ways. You know as well as I do, your party, the Republican Party, is the one who's politicizing the virus. That's the party that's doing it. They're the ones who've turned a mask into what? Some hideous overextension of government authority? Like a decla- not wearing a mask is a declaration of liberty? The It's your party. It's your party. It's the one with that sheriff in the South who issued an order that no one is supposed to wear a mask when they come into the jail. Nobody's supposed to wear a mask when they come into jail. I have a full page ad in my beloved bright one home delivered as always from the Teamsters Union. Tell Cook County Board President Tony Prankwinkle to stop spreading COVID-19. It was talking about how unsafe conditions are in the Cook County Jail. And they're blaming on Tony Prankwinkle. Meanwhile, the Republican Party got a sheriff in Florida saying you cannot wear a mask when you go to jail. So you know, Jim Durkin, that it's only one party that has politicized this issue. You know that. But again... Because you're a Republican and your party's being taken over by the lunatic fringe that you oppose, you feel compelled to play it both ways. See, that's the, I, I kind of like warming up to respecting Jim Durkin. I really am trying to warm it up, D, because he was the one, he was, remember, he was the one Republican who denounced like having Nazi slogans and signs. Yeah. You gotta give him credit. DB Darren Bailey, who's, the face of the Republican Party these days in the state of Illinois, the brightest brain they got, apparently, you know, is the next hot coming st- superstar. He's the brains of the Republican Party. Darren Bailey was saying, uh, uh, you know, he didn't believe that the people with the with the signs, with the Nazi slogans and the swastikas were really Republicans. But at least Jim Durkin condemned them. So I give him credit for that. But he's struggling with this. He can't, he, you know, he's just, he can't go Mitt Romney. He can't go John McCain. He's still struggling. Let it go, Jim. The party that you joined is not the party that exists right now. It's run by a lunatic fringe of maniacs who promote dangerous recommendations like don't wear a mask. It's not the Democrat. You don't have to play it both ways. Let's be honest. Come on, Jim. The party that you joined is not the party that exists today. All right. Before our conservative-themed uh, local news segment continues, we do have breaking news here. Uh, this comes from Newsbreak.com. NBA players decide to resume season following boycott. Uh, let's see here. It says the NBA players in the Orlando bubble have decided to resume the postseason. This is according to Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski. Uh, Thursday's playoff games have been postponed. However, uh, as all three of Wednesday's games were, discussions on when the postseason will begin are ongoing. But for now, both sides are aiming for Friday, a.k.a. tomorrow. Well, I have to read uh, more of the details to understand exactly what's going on. Like, uh, it was, did they get anything concrete? I always thought they were going to link their boycott uh, to sentencing or to, excuse me, charging uh, the police officer in uh, Kenosha who shot Blake. Uh, 
apparently they didn't do that. But I don't know. They haven't read the story. So it's interesting news, breaking news. The the boycott is over. I was with the boycott 100 percent. D, I was with them. 150 percent was with them. Uh, LeBron James, have you been reading his uh, Twitter feed at all, D? No. No, you're a big Twitter guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got a little confession to make here, D. Let, let not this, let, don't let this get around. Every night before I go to bed, I do, uh, oh, God, this is so embarrassing. I read, the, I look up the NBA on the internet. And I read all, like, the Twitter feeds and stuff. It's so embarrassing. Uh, and I listen to the interviews. I'm a huge basketball fan. So, you know, I had, like, mixed feelings. I mean, on one hand, I love basketball. I love watching it. Not even mixed feelings, though. I was, I, I, I respected uh, the players so much for taking that stand, uh, not playing those games. And I got to give a shout-out to Craig Hodges, Craig Hodges is the man. Uh, he was so far ahead of his time. Former Bulls, uh, sharp shooting guard, great three-point shooter. In 1991, at the start of the playoffs, my beloved Bulls had finally made it to the playoffs. Uh, they're playing the Lakers. Craig Hodges went up to uh, Michael Jeffrey Jordan and Irvin Magic Johnson and said, let's have a boycott. Let's not. Let's go to the locker room and not emerge uh, and force this country to pay attention to the ills facing black people in our country. And both Jordan and uh, Magic Johnson said, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? Now, anyway, by the way, we we did an interview with Craig Hodges, which you can hear, right, D? Right, with one of those. Download yeah. it at your favorite podcast. There you go. Both Chicago <laughs> Sun-Times, the Chicago Reader websites, and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. You'll get there one day, big guy. Uh, it take me a while. Now, uh, there are some people uh, on our live stream chat weighing in, and also I've seen it on social media as well. Uh, we, we say boycott, but it's more it's a strike, right? Uh, yes, it is. It was like a wildcat strike, I guess you could call it. Uh, and um, there, uh, LeBron James called it a boycott. So I'll call it a wildcat strike. It was a uh, it was a strike. The Milwaukee Bucks. We're not playing. We're not. We're withholding our services. So I guess yeah, you're right. It's a wildcat strike. And I guess they've ended the strike. Although that kind of language has been. And by the way, the 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 owners. Of the NBA, they were like, oh, geez, how do we deal with this? <laughs> God. Well, someone, you know, a lot of these owners, guys, I didn't break the news to you. They're Republicans. They love Donnie Trump. They love that tax break. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, there's only one black uh, owner in the NBA. Let's see if Dennis could do this for 10 trivia points. What? Dennis. <laughs> And it's not Ice Cube. Name the uh, the only African American to own an NBA basketball team. Um, I, uh, I don't know. Um, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Oh yeah, anyway, yeah. Charlotte Hornets. Anyway, um, so you know they're, 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 they're this is a little iffy for them, you know, because uh, they love Donnie Trump, but they got to keep quiet about it since. They have essentially a business relationship with people like LeBron James, who are very prominent and are very open uh, about uh, their utter disdain for Donald Trump. So they got to show support for the striking players. I'm going to use that word. Strike was a wildcat strike. And uh, please pardon my ignorance. I mean, we've worked together for three years, so you've been doing it this long. So just keep pardoning my ignorance here. What is a wildcat strike? That's one where you just go on strike uh, without... It's like a, a walkout. It's basically a walkout without an official vote. You know, there's generally rules and regulations in a collective bargaining agreement. If they allow for strike, it's like, that's it. We've had enough. We're walking out. Walk out that door. 
welcome anymore. Won't you? Sorry. All right. Uh, Let's keep talking some local news here. uh, By the way, thank you to Rachel Hinton. Uh, Great work on that piece. Boy, you gave me a lot of material there. Can't thank you enough. Go check out Rachel Hinton, Chicago Sun-Times, her article. She's awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, here we go. Now, on Tuesday, we got an update on our, thank God, former Republican Governor Bruce Rauner. (laughs) He's a registered voter in Florida and has a mansion in Key Largo. Whoa. Uh, But state records show that Rauner has not made campaign donations in his own name to anyone in Illinois during the current two-year election cycle. Leader Jim Durkin, Durkin, not Durbin, provided some more information on Rauner, saying that he has spoken with Rauner several times about getting involved, and Durkin still seemed to be holding out hope the venture capitalist might help House GOP candidates. Durkin said Rauner is aware of what they have at stake. Um, Durkin, I'm going to break some harsh news to you. <laughs> you might. You, Rauner doesn't care about you. <laughs> he does not care about you. He wanted to turn Illinois into Scott Walker's Wisconsin. He wanted to destroy unions in Illinois, and he couldn't do it. So now he doesn't care. He's taking his ball and he's left. He, he doesn't care about Illinois. He doesn't even live in Illinois. I mean, I know he has houses in Illinois. He's probably still claiming a homeowner's exemption somewhere in Illinois, even though he's like, hey, there's an investigative story. Hey, any investigative reporters out there? Get cracking on that one. Look and see if... Bruce Rauner is still declaring a homeowner's exemption on one of his many properties uh, in Illinois while saying he's a v- registered voter in Florida. Ooh, ooh, I think that yeah. would be, I think that would be illegal. Ooh, I think that would be vote fraud. Quick, call Donald Trump. Oh, <laughs> dude, dude, come on, dude, just for old time's sake, do your Rauner. I mean, I, I did it yesterday, but duh, uh, uh. <laughs> I love the router. Yeah, so uh, Durkin, forget it. Doesn't care about you. Doesn't care. All right, our conservative-themed local news continues. And while Jimmy D was not invited to tonight's acceptance speech from the president, lucky him, the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police president was (laughs) Johnny C. John Catanzara. This dude. Kat and Zara, who got a personal Twitter shout out from the president when he was elected the head of the police union this spring, has been invited to the White House on Thursday for the president's acceptance speech. And fingers crossed, Kat and Zara may even get VIP treatment. Now we have some audio of a giddy Kat and Zara talking about it. Like to hear it. Here it goes. Shout out to ABC 7 News for the audio. For the love of God, please do not <laughs> sue us. The president is the loudest supporter of law enforcement that we've ever had. Chicago Fraternal Order of Police President John Catanzaro, who got a personal Twitter shout-out from the president when he was elected the head of the police union this spring, has now been invited to the White House on Thursday for the president's acceptance speech, and he may even get VIP treatment. I don't know what that entails or if that involves a formal meet-and-greet or not, but I certainly hope so because... I'd like to thank him for his constantly keeping Chicago on the radar of the national news. All right. I just have to say this in all due respect, uh, Mr. Catanzara, Donald Trump, if he's a big supporter of police officers, has a funny way of showing it. I mean, good God. Where's the funding? Where's the funding for anything related to the day-to-day problems that afflict police officers? Where's the federal funding for more, I don't know, 
mental health for Chicago police officers? Where's the funding for more mental health for anybody in the city of Chicago? Where's the funding for any program that might reduce crime in the city of Chicago? All he does is tweet out statements ripping Lori Lightfoot. How's that supporting a police officer? How's that dealing with the underlying causes for lawlessness and crime? I mean, just at a basic level, where's the funds? Where's the federal funds to help police officers dealing with mental issues, mental health issues? Huh? Where is it? Nowhere. It's so cheap. He gets the support of the Fraternal Order of Police. He does nothing for the Fraternal Order of Police except out tweet out attacks on Lori Life. That's all it's going to take? That That's it? I mean, it's a transactional situation here in the city of Chicago. You know, what are you going to give me for your support? Where's the, all it takes is a tweet? Now, look, Canizaro loves MAGA. Remember, he was the dude D with the picture, with the sign. When he was a cop, I defended him. John, I defended you. I said, you're the First Amendment protector, right? Put up that sign and say you love the president. I wish you would respect the First Amendment rights of police officers who want to take a knee. I'm just saying. It's a two-way street, the First Amendment, free expression. Republican brothers and sisters are often inconsistent on that point. I don't know. If I were a member of the Fraternal Order of Police, I'd be a little concerned that my union is just like bowing down to Donald Trump and getting nothing, nothing in return. Where's the help for the pension relief? We had, what, what was a uh, old boy from uh, Don Harmon, Oak Park, Senator. Remember he had the proposal to stick in the, to the uh, uh, COVID relief, a bailout for the pension funds. Ah, that would be great. Take care of retired cops and firefighters and teachers, municipal employees, got a pension that governors like Rod Blagojevich didn't keep the payments up on. Yeah, that Rod Blagojevich, the one that uh, MAGA loves these days. That would have been help. But no, he was condemned on harm. Everybody condemned him. Even my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times condemned him. Donald Trump should have said, welcomed it. Should have said, yeah, I want to take care of Canizera's group. I'm going to take care of those. I'm going to kick some pension money to Chicago to take care of those police officers. Retire. Uh-uh. All he has to do is send out a tweet. And Johnny's like, oh, I love you. You thank you. I'm telling you, man, at least Stacey Davis Gates asks for something. You know, SDG. Chicago Teachers Union, get a lot of abuse these days. Nobody likes the Teachers Union, D. Nobody. You know, I can't think of one politician in the area that openly says they like the police union, I mean, the teachers union. But Candace Harris got Trump, right? I can't think of it. It's so weird because the teachers union is far closer in every respect to where Chicagoans are on the ideological roadmap than Trump. But no love. That's, that's, that's how the left doesn't support itself. So anyway, John, I'm just saying, look, I'm happy you're happy. Go have a good time. I know you're not going to be wearing a mask. Feel free to share drinks with all the other Republicans. Share the peanuts that they give out. Take a picture with Trump, Donnie Jr., whatever. But I'm just saying, where's the love? How about getting something for it? You know what I mean? Other than a tweet and some peanuts.
All right, everybody, there you are. That's our local news. Uh, we're going to go to break here, but remember, you can find us on social media at Finney J Show, B E N N Y, the letter J Show, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can send us an email, Benny J Show at gmail.com. Reach out to us, tell us your thoughts, and you can call us. It's true, 708-658-4788. That number again, 708-658-4788. Leave us a voicemail, give us your thoughts, and who knows if you're not insane or if you watch your mouth, we could feature you on the program. Don't go anywhere. The Ben Jarofsky Show will be right back. We are live from Ben's Attic in my apartment. very positively in a in another sense so this morning yeah i tested positively toward negative right so no i tested uh, perfectly this morning meaning meaning i tested negative Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benjamin J., take it away. 
I'm really happy to hear that Donald Trump tested negatively. He studied for that test. He studied for his COVID test. He was up all night cramming. Oh, God, this is hard. <laughs> anyway, I've been uh, promoting Chris Crane, uh, his appearance on the show. Earlier today, I talked about it. We had the cannabis conversation. Lisa Solomon uh, brings on some excellent uh, people from the cannabis industry. That's how I got to know Vincent Norman, who was on the show again yesterday, talking about the NBA players. I urge everybody uh, to download that after you listen uh, to Chris Crane. Uh, we're going to be talking about how the uh, COVID-19 has caused legal weed to quote-unquote cannibalize the illicit, mar uh, the illicit market. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the dispensary uh, in South Shore that was uh, shut down after the unrest in May, and now it's open again. Uh, we're going to talk about Kamala Harris. This is the part, Chris Crane, that I sort of teased earlier in the show. Uh, Kamala Harris's impact on, to me, which is the most crucial issue right now facing cannabis the, the fact that it's still illegal on the federal level. I cannot stop crusading against that. Uh, and then we're going to talk about your uh, latest, uh, some of your more recent articles in Forbes on raising money for states, cities, federal government by legalizing marijuana. But that's enough of a tease. I'm going to turn things over to Lisa to officially introduce Chris Kane and ask the first question. Go ahead, Lisa. Yeah. So, Chris, thank you for joining us today. So, Chris Crane is the president and co-founder of Forefront Ventures and Mission Dispensaries. So, Chris, before we dive into all those topics Ben just mentioned, will you tell us how you made the transition from advocacy and policy work to the cannabis world? Sure. Well, first off, thanks for thanks for having me on. I'm uh, really, really looking forward to this one. Um, so as far as your question, you know, as you mentioned, I started out in the advocacy world. I, I worked for 10 years in Washington, D.C., uh, working on trying to end the war on drugs and legalize cannabis uh, professionally uh, with organizations like Normal and Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And I made the move to the industry in uh, late 2009 uh, as I was uh, leaving my, my, my job running SSDP. Uh, and it was you know, at that time, the legal cannabis industry was, was barely a thing. Uh, I mean, it really was just kind of in Northern California. Um, Colorado was, was just starting to start up, but it was really in its infancy. Um, and I had established a good relationship with Steve D'Angelo, uh, who was the owner of Harborside Health Center, uh, which was the largest dispensary in the country at the time. Um, they were donors of mine and my, my nonprofit in D.C. And it was just becoming clear to me that the work that was being done uh, in the in the early industry, especially on the retail side, because that's what the public interfaces with, was having as much of an impact on changing public perception around cannabis and, and therefore would lead to changes in public policy around cannabis as the advocacy work I'd been doing in the nonprofit world. That if you could just demonstrate to the public that cannabis can be distributed in a way that is highly professional and responsible and community focused, that it breaks down the stereotype that so many people have had drilled into them from the time they were quite young of a cannabis, you know, cannabis commerce being a, a shady street corner deal or a couple of burnouts in their parents' basement to this beautiful, well-run uh, professional retail store. And then if you can just demonstrate that to folks, um, that will allow people to picture what a post-prohibition world will look like and will help change public perception and move the issue forward. So that was my motivation uh, getting involved in the industry in 2009 and still remains my motivation today. So quickly, for listeners that have not heard us talk about prohibition in the past, will you explain what you mean by prohibition? 
Sure. Well, when I talk about cannabis being illegal uh, in the country, I, I refer to it as prohibition. I think mo most folks in the reform movement do, do as well, um, because really there's no difference between the way that we treat cannabis today and the way that we treated alcohol during alcohol prohibition. And so I think and, and I like the phrasing because you know a lot of people just think about cannabis as part of this war on drugs and think that it's something that's always been illegal. But it hasn't. Marijuana was made illegal in 19. Uh, uh, 1937. It was legal before that. It was widely used, uh, especially as a, as a medicine and in the pharmacopoeia in the United States. And, and I also think people, when they think about alcohol prohibition and they think about the word prohibition, they associate it with a massive policy failure. Um, like there are very few people in the country that are willing to defend alcohol prohibition. It's a successful experiment. And so framing our approach to marijuana in the same way that in the same terms that we approached alcohol during prohibition, I think helps people understand why this is such a terrible uh, approach to dealing with cannabis and such a, and such a failed public policy. Thank you for clarifying and explaining that. All right, Ben, take it away. Well, all right. I think following up with that, I wrote that. It's funny you should say that, Elise. I, when you, when, as soon as you said post-prohibition world, I, I wrote that down, Chris. I would love to get into that. But I want to go back to the prohibition world. I, this has been a theme I've championed for years. Uh, too much delight. I'd love to get your response to this one. For so long, it's like a schizophrenic world that we had when it came to uh, what you guys call cannabis. All right, Chris, it was schizophrenic, totally schizophrenic. I gave a shout out to you before we began the show because I could see you're wearing a normal shirt. Uh, it's like a yeah. classic 70s shirt. So it is from the 70s. Yes, it's total right. 70s. Everybody is that I know has been smoking marijuana since the 60s. All right. And yet it was illegal. And we right. had this schizophrenic world. I, when I first started writing about this, Chris, where I couldn't find a politician in Illinois. You were, this was, I'm talking about 2010, 2011. I couldn't find a politician that would go on the record saying, yes, we should legalize marijuana. Yes, it's totally insane that we live this hypocrisy where we all smoke it or we all know people who smoke it, and yet we pretend there's something wrong and demonize the stuff so in your opinion having lived through all that and emerged where we are now in this but we're not completely post-prohibition why do you think we clung to all those outdated schizophrenic notions of marijuana for so long well, I think it's I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, first off, we haven't actually had majority uh, support amongst the general public for legalization until uh, about seven or eight years ago was when we passed the 50 percent threshold. Um, so if you think back to the 70s, when normal was sort of ascendant and a lot of people thought that you know marijuana was going to be legal by the end of the decade. I know the folks at normal, um, my former boss, Keith Strop, um, the founder of normal. Um, you know, they were confident that marijuana was going to be legal by the end of the 70s and they were going to move on to legalizing cocaine by the 80s. Right. But e even even back then, we were nowhere near majority support amongst the American public. We were actually only in the 20s and then low 30s throughout the 70s in terms of support. We've ticked up about one percent to two percent a year. Um, very consistently, actually, if you look at the Gallup polling on this, which does go back to the 70s, it's been about a 1% to 2% gain in support for legalization um, going all the way back to the 70s and continues actually to today with the exception of uh, of around 20, uh, 2012. In 2012, we saw about a 7 to 8-point jump in support of legalization, and that, I think, was because of 
the ballot initiatives passing in Colorado and Washington. And I think that had a particularly profound effect on the public consciousness around this issue, because before that, when I was doing this policy work, we would poll folks. And what the polling would say was that support was getting close to 50 percent or right around 50 percent at that time. This was, you know, late 20 teens, early or late, late, late 2000s, early 20 teens. Um, but if you asked people, do your friends and neighbors or coworkers support legalization? It was in the low 20s. And so what that said was that. A majority or, 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 or close to a majority of people support legalization, but they're not talking about it with their friends. They're not talking about it with their family because it's such a taboo subject. And so what happened in 2012 when Colorado and Washington passed those ballot initiatives and passed them relatively narrowly was that the very next day in water coolers all around the country, people were talking about, oh, you see, you know, it's the first conversation was probably, you see, you know, Obama defeated Romney, but you know, that's, people don't like to talk that much about politics. It could be a sore subject amongst folks. And it's like, hey, did you see these states legalize marijuana? And all of a sudden people were talking about it and they had the political cover to do so and started to realize that they weren't alone. It all of a sudden became safe to support legalization, at least amongst the public. And now we're starting to see the politicians catch up. Unfortunately, elected officials tend to lag quite a bit behind the public on this. And many still cling to this outdated political calculus that if they are in support of legalization, they're gonna be painted as soft on drugs or soft on crime. This is a holdover political calculus from the 80s and 90s and, and the, the war on you know, the, the, the Reagan, Bush, Clinton war on drugs. Uh, that is no longer valid. In fact, I think there's way more upside to politicians supporting legalization now than there is downside from both political parties. But there still is a lot of that sentiment, that that drug war sentiment and fear of coming out in support and being labeled as soft on crime uh, amongst politicians at large. All right. Uh, let's uh, update it to uh, the, the fact that it's still illegal on a federal level. And uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, people in Illinois, we didn't even need a referendum. We, it was uh, made legal by an act of the General Assembly. Nobody, I don't believe there's any person who voted for that uh, law is in any trouble over that for having made that no. vote. It was, you know what I'm saying? No, in fact, uh, many, of them, many of them gained a lot of political contributions and gained new supporters because of it. Uh, in fact, in fact, you can make the argument that for, for politicians who voted against it, um, they were more likely to face political consequences for a no vote than anybody was for a yes vote. Yes. All right. So, but it's still uh, illegal on the federal level. So before I ask you uh, what it's going to take to make it legal, talk, explain to people the impact of having cannabis illegal on the federal level. Well, it's massive. Um, so just, you know, from a, from a personal standpoint, like there, there are people that are still being arrested, prosecuted, thrown in prison um, for doing something that is legal in, in uh, about a third of the country now. Um, thankfully, you know, the, the federal government doesn't enforce most criminal laws. Those are mostly at the state level, but the states tend to take their cues from the feds. And there are still states all around the country where people are being arrested are being prosecuted or having their lives uh, ruined and turned upside down because um, they're engaged in, in using cannabis or selling small amounts of cannabis, things that I don't think anybody should ever face a criminal penalty for. Um, on the business side of things and, uh, and being you know, the president of the cannabis company, cannabis being illegal federally creates 
all number of challenges for cannabis businesses that no other industry faces. Um, it's still difficult for us to get bank accounts in the cannabis industry. When we can get bank accounts, uh, we pay exorbitant fees uh, because there are so few banks that are willing to do it and the reporting requirements are so tough. Our tax rates are substantially higher than any other industry because uh, we are taxed uh, at the federal level as if we are federal drug traffickers. Uh, which means that we are not allowed to write off standard business deductions that every other uh, industry is allowed to, or any other business is allowed to take. Um, we do not have access to uh, publicly traded exchanges uh, here in the United States. The publicly traded cannabis companies are all traded on the Canadian Securities Exchange, which is sort of the second tier uh, uh, public exchange up in Canada. Um, uh, whereas the Canadian uh, legal uh, legal Canadian companies, or legal federally, are trading on the on the Nasdaq and on the Dow. Um, it means that access to investment is extremely challenging. Uh, institutional capital is not available at all. Uh, a lot of major investors, large scale investors won't touch this yet because it's federally illegal. They don't want to take that risk. Um, and so at every, basically at every step of the way in terms of doing business in the cannabis industry, there are roadblocks that we face due to it being federally illegal that no other industry would face. Not to mention the fact that in theory, we are all still violating the, not in theory, in practice, we're all violating the Controlled Substances Act, but in theory, the federal government, if they really wanted to, could send the DEA in and arrest and prosecute everybody that owns, invests in, or works in a cannabis business. That doesn't really happen, but that hangs over all of our heads, um, something that we shouldn't have to think about. Uh, what we're doing is legal and licensed and regulated in the states that we operate in. All right. That was a, a great riff there, uh, Chris. I appreciate it. I was taking notes on it. Uh, and you, you mentioned that in theory, um, you're violating federal law. Uh, they could throw you in jail if they wanted to look for a pretense to do it. The first attorney general that uh, Donald Trump appointed, Jeff Sessions, was outspoken uh, about his, uh, urge, his, his compulsion to destroy, uh, the cannabis industry. And he looked like he was determined to throw, throw you in jail if he could. He of course is not the attorney general at the moment. Uh, and, uh, so what is, how is the bar and the justice department, uh, treating can the cannabis industry? Are they, do they have that same fervor that Jeff Sessions does? Have they just, are they just sort of ignoring you? What's the situation? Um, so it's it's a little bit nuanced, but I would say on on the whole, and this is this is a bit of a surprise. This, this definitely came as a bit of a, of a surprise, and I'd say it's a welcome surprise, um, given some of of uh, Jeff Sessions' rhetoric around this. The Obama administration, so the, the Trump administration's Justice Department, has treated this issue largely as a continuation of the way the Obama administration did. Um, in that they have not raided any businesses. They did get rid of the guidance that existed within the DOJ that, that called on, um, uh, that, that called on us district attorneys to, to treat this as a, as a low priority. Um, but in practice, they haven't, we haven't seen raids. We haven't seen arrests. We haven't seen uh, civil asset forfeiture on, 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 real estate or properties. And so there has been largely a continuation there, uh, from the Obama hands-off policy to the Trump administration, where we have seen a shift in recent times and uh, has, has actually been around attorney bar. Uh, while Jeff Sessions was quite blustery around this um, and made a lot of noise and said some really stupid things like, you know, he thought that, you know, Ku Klux Klansmen were good people until he found out they smoked marijuana. Uh, while uh, Bill Barr's rhetoric has not matched Sessions rhetoric. Um, they have taken actions under this Justice Department that we didn't see uh, under Jeff Sessions, and that has primarily come in the form of 
um, antitrust actions. Um, so when cannabis companies have been looking to merge um, or engage in a merger or large scale acquisition, they have to go through a process of the Department of Justice um, to get approval for that acquisition. This is, this is something that's not unique to cannabis. Any companies over a certain size that engage in a merger and acquisition have to get approval from the antitrust depart, uh, department of the Department of Justice and have used that as a way to hold up mergers um, to require these companies to spend an exorbitant amount of money going through a process that they would not normally have to go through uh, as companies of their size. Um, and it has had really negative impacts on the companies that have gone through this process, financial impacts. Uh, some mergers have, have fallen through because this process has taken them so long and has been so expensive. Um, and we heard testimony before Congress just a couple of months ago that this was an intentional uh, act uh, ordered by Bill Barr as a way to harass cannabis companies. Um, and so this is sort of a new front in the way that the Justice Department has gone after co uh, cannabis companies. And I think you know, if you're looking to really harass cannabis companies and make their lives difficult, this is a smarter way for them to go about it than, than, you know, than raids and arrests and asset forfeiture, because those tend to have, you know, big headlines. Uh, they, they're, it's really unpopular, but, you know, trying to explain the nuances of, of, you know, antitrust exemptions and antitrust approvals is really boring and it's really complicated. And so it doesn't get the headlines that, mm -hmm. um, you know, law enforcement action might. All right. Uh, it's, so that leads me to ask this question as we look uh, toward the presidential election. If there's any politician on the right who has the freedom to endorse the legalization of cannabis on a federal level, it's Donald Trump. Uh, this is me speaking, not Chris Kane. I'm going to articulate my worldview on this, Chris. And if you disagree with me, feel free to. Uh, but the, the, the cult-like congregation of enthusiasts uh, that I call MAGA, who they love Donald Trump, will go wherever he takes them. So uh, Donald Trump the other day uh, suggested that he might um, commute the sentence of uh, Edward Snowden. I mean, I, I read that, Chris Kane. I was like, are you kidding me? I don't know if it was just like, if he, he I don't know if he was high when he said it. He did, you know, he just said it and then it died and everything. But I it just, I've said this all along, Chris. Donald Trump is so unpredictable that it's possible if he just one day he wakes up and goes, you know what? I think we should legalize cannabis, although you would probably call it pot or something. And uh, and then boom, MAGA would on a dime would flip and start because whatever he says, they do. So well, and, and a lot of those a lot of those MAGA supporters use cannabis. No. Right? They're, they're pot, a lot of them are pot smokers, right? That's I mean, the best part of their life is when they're high. <laughs> God damn it, when they wake up. Man, can you guys start smoking right now? Because you're crazy, Willis. Yeah, I'm with you. Of course they do. Everybody a does. Lot of them do. I mean, we're not talking here about like the Christian right. That's not his base. Well, that, that, that's part of his base. And I don't think he loses anybody in the Christian right if he comes out in support of legalization either because, you know, look, he's given them two Supreme Court justices and he's been – you know, super pro-life and that's what they care about. And they've been willing to overlook, they, and, and it's big, right? They've been willing to overlook kids in cages and, and, you know, telling people to inject bleach for, uh, you know, for COVID and all the other, you know, all the other crazy scandals that we've seen at this administration, they've stuck with him hook, line and sinker. And so has the, you know, the, what you would call the MAGA base, many of whom are members. Um, so you, I, you raise an excellent point. I actually wrote a column in Forbes a couple of years ago about this, laying out the political case for why Trump should come out in support of legalization and laying out the electoral case for him to do that. 
I don't see a political downside. Like we just talked about, his base is not going to lo- is not going to leave him because he comes out in support of legalization. If they haven't left him over any number of these like big scandals and, and some of the crazy stuff that's happened over the last four years, they're not going to leave him because he comes out in support of legalization. But there is a there is a large contingent of young voters who are very supportive of legalization, who are generally not supportive of, of Trump, but who also, in particular in this election, are not crazy about Joe Biden. Right? Biden has been amongst the worst Democrats uh, in, in, in Congress for decades on marijuana. Um, he's struggling most among young voters in general. And there are voters who I believe you know, are, are more inclined to vote for Biden if they vote but who don't really like him and whose support is relatively soft, that if Trump were to come out in support of legalization could win over a number of those voters. And I look at particularly a state like Arizona, which is going to have, which is, which is an incredibly important swing state this year. It's right around the tipping point state, according to the 538 forecasts, um, which is going to have a legalization initiative on the ballot this year. And there are young voters who are going to turn out to vote because they care about legalization. They're going to vote because of marijuana because that's on the ballot, who will likely vote for Biden when they're in the voting booth because the younger voters demographically tend to, to, to skew more Democratic, um, but who, if one of the two candidates were in favor of legalization and the other were not, and they're turning out because they're motivated to vote for legalization, we'll pull the lever for that candidate. Trump could win over a number of those voters. Like This literally could be the difference between Trump winning or losing the state of Arizona in November mm-hmm. if he were to decide to take action on this uh, before the election. Absolutely, I'm with you. I, listen, I don't want to give any suggestions that would help Donald Trump uh, win re-election. <laughs> but, yeah, I feel a little bad about that. Uh, but, uh, but, 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 but you're absolutely right? correct. Everything you said was absolutely correct. And I'll go one step further. The Republican crusade, and it is Republican now. We'll get in. We'll get into Kamala and Joe Biden in a little bit, Chris. But the Republican crusade against legalizing marijuana at the federal level goes completely contrary to their otherwise libertarian attitude about most things. Like they don't want you to wear a mask. You should have the freedom to wear a mask, not to wear a mask. That's their principle, Chris. I'm not making this stuff up. That's what they say, all right? So how can the same party that says it's an infringement on our constitutional rights not to wear a mask turn right around and say, oh, well, (laughs) we are against the legalization of marijuana. Why? Because you saw, like, reefer madness in a health class in 1968? You follow what I'm saying, Chris Crane? It completely contradicts where they're at. Well, it's, you're, you're exactly right. And particularly for, for, the, for the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, which has traditionally been a fairly large faction of the party, it's just intellectually dishonest to say that we, you know, we, 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 we believe people should have the, the freedom and the right to, to make decisions that, uh, you know, that they feel is best for themselves. And, and yet to also say that they don't have the right to make, uh, you know, to make a dis- their own decision about, about marijuana, I would argue about drugs in general, um, right? This is a, that, that, and, and, and I think that the actual, the actual libertarians uh, are, are there on this issue, but the libertarian leaning Republicans starting to, but, but not really. You can make the case for some of the sort of the Christian fundamentalists in the party, this, you know, making marijuana illegal is somewhat consistent with their with their worldview, um, but certainly not with the libertarian leaning Republicans. Although I will say, as far as the Republicans go at this point, it really has become generational. The older Republicans and old and particularly older elected, older Republican elected officials have been awful on this issue. And unfortunately, that is the leadership of the Republican Party right there. You don't you don't see a lot of, of, of folks in, in leadership uh, in Congress who are under the age of 70 and demographically, like Republicans over the age of 70 are just not there on this issue. 
Um, but the younger Republicans, um, you know, Matt, I look at a, a Matt Gates, Gates, for example, right? He's as Trumpy as they get. And yet he is he is he is gung ho legalization, right? A Cory Gardner, Rand Paul, right? The new generation of Republicans are actually much better on this issue. The problem is they have no leadership power in the Republican Party right now. The Democrats are largely there, by and large, and that was not the case ten years ago. But the Democrats as a party are largely there on legalization, and it's it's not generational there anymore. But they're in the Republican Party. It really has become more of of a generational split uh, than than anything else. Uh, all right, Chris, let, now we're at the Democrats. So let's deal with the Democrats. And uh, I've been writing about Democrats and Lee for, for many, many years. And here's the problem with Democrats. And again, these are my views. If you disagree, feel free. Democrats are scared of their own shadows. So they're so afraid of a Republican attack ad that they'll sign on to any stupid old legislation that in their hearts they don't support. And this is so true with cannabis. See, I'm being good, Lisa. Lisa's, I always call it, Lisa's making me call it cannabis when I have these guests on, the cannabis industry, Ben. So they're so cowardly, Chris Crane, on the issue of cannabis. 10 years ago, you couldn't find a Democrat to talk about it because they were no, just, so- Just Tony Frank. <laughs> Who? Yeah. Barney Frank. Barney Frank. One guy. And I remember when Rahm Emanuel ran for re-election in 2014. This is probably before you moved to Chicago, Chris. He declared that no way would he support the legalization of marijuana. This was the declaration he made in 2014. I thought it was the most preposterous declaration to make because, first of all, the overwhelming majority of people in Chicago are for the legalization of marijuana. So he looked like he was running in Downers Grove in 1968 or something like that. So that leads me to where we are right now. How strong do you think the Democrats will come out for this issue? Do you you think they're still afraid of those Republican attack ads, or do you think they're going to find the courage of their convictions on this? Well, I think they're always afraid of the Republican attack ads. I mean, I, I actually agree with I agree with just about everything you just said there. I think when I look at the way that Democrats and Republicans have governed when they've been in control, particularly in Washington, I always say Republicans govern on offense and Democrats govern on defense. Yeah. Right? Democrats are always they're they're always afraid of losing the next election. Uh, whereas when Republicans take power, especially when they take all branches of government, they pass everything they want to pass because the reality is they're going to face those attack ads no matter what they do. Right. I mean, Joe Biden, the most moderate uh, uh, sort of milk toast Democrat that, you, you know, that, that that's out there is being portrayed as a as a as a socialist. Um, right. As a rat, you know, a radical left socialist. Like just, they're going to do that no matter what. So you may as well actually try and pass the legislation that you want to see. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to be portrayed that way anyway. Um, now, now, that said. I am cautiously optimistic that if the Democrats manage to take back the control of power in D.C., and this they would have to take the Senate in addition to the White House in order to be able to pass anything meaningful, because Mitch McConnell is not our friend on this issue. Um, but if the Democrats do manage to retake everything, I think that there is a real chance that we see meaningful reform um, in the next couple of years, uh, even with Joe Biden as, as the president. Um, and the reason I say that is that during the Democrats' time in the wilderness over the last few years, they really have changed their position quite a bit on, on, on marijuana. Um, they have 
uh, come around not only on legalization, but they've really gotten educated on the details and the nuances of this. They've spent the last few years debating what's the right bill and what should the right bill look like. Um, you know, you've had debates around things like the States Act and the Moore Act and the Marijuana Justice Act. And I forget what Schumer's bill is called, but he's got one himself as well. So, the, you know, the Democrats really have been spending their time getting educated on this issue and debating this issue. I actually liken it somewhat to what happened here in Illinois uh, prior to, uh, to to Pritzker's election, where for the years prior to this, uh, Staines and Cassidy, the, the, the main sponsors of the bill that ultimately passed, had introduced legislation knowing full well that uh, Governor Rauner was never going to sign it, right? That this, these bills were never going anywhere. But what they were doing was they were laying the groundwork and making the sausage while they were, you know, while, while they didn't have a chance of actually getting it passed so that when they had an administration that would sign it, they were ready to go. And that's why they were able to pass it so quickly because they had spent years laying that groundwork. And I have actually, to give the Democrats some credit, I have seen the Democrats doing that over the last few years in Washington in a way that they never did uh, prior to the, the Trump administration. Well, I urge Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to declare this as their issue right now. Now, they're probably going to be afraid, Chris, because they're getting assaulted as uh, the party of uh, lawlessness and disorder. And that's where the Trump Republicans are going right now. You're going to hear it tonight in Donald Trump's speech big time uh, at the Republican convention. So, again, one more time, Chris, my beloved Democratic Party will be afraid to make a declaration. But I do believe that electorally it would help them. It would help them in Arizona. It would help them with younger voters across the board. If Joe Biden were to say, you know, what? I was wrong. I was wrong in this. And uh, I'm now f- this is what I'm going to do. This is going to be the top of my list of legislative priorities. Uh I be, I don't see that happening, Chris, but I wish it would. It is such a massive missed opportunity for the Democrats. Uh, you know, and they had a chance. They had a chance to make this statement. They just did their party platform two weeks ago, and they, ref- they, they voted down an amendment uh, supporting legalization uh, for the platform. Um, right? Biden has had every opportunity to take advantage of this issue, to own it. And yet his, his position, Biden's position on this issue right now, which – Look, to be fair, for Biden, for Joe Biden, given his history, is has is, is actually moved quite a lot. Um, when we look back historically, when I was doing this policy work in D.C., like we had two major enemies on the Democratic side of the aisle in the Senate, and that was Joe Biden and Dianne Feinstein. So the fact that he today is, 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 is progress, but still his position today is he supports decriminalization, expungement, letting states, medical marijuana, and letting states implement their own marijuana laws, which effectively puts his position in line with Barack Obama's position when he was a candidate in 2008. That, in my mind, is wholly unacceptable for the Democratic standard bearer in 2020. Uh, We've moved really far in the last 12 years. The Democratic Party has moved really far in the last 12 years. The American public has moved really far in the last 12 years. And for Joe Biden to not have the courage to, to, to adopt that position and to still stick with the position that you know, his then running mate had in, in 2008 is just unacceptable for the Democratic standard bearer today. All right, I so agree I with you. Lisa has a question. Go ahead, Lisa. There's been a lot of progress made in terms of normalization and destigmatization, but there is still so much further to go, and this needs to be done through education. So people that use it recreationally and don't understand the medical benefits or the racist history of prohibition can really get on board. So why are cannabis companies not doing more PSA types of campaigns? Why are leaders in states that have 
approved it recreationally, not doing more educational campaigns. There are still people that, you know, take way too much the first time they take an edible because they have no idea where to start. Uh, They don't know their interactions with other medications. There's so much important information to get out there. What can be done about this? Well, it's a good question. I, you know, and I actually think the industry is is doing some, but there's only so much the industry itself can do. Uh, like these are real public education campaigns that should be run by public health departments. And some states have done this better than others. Um, Colorado and Washington, I think, has actually have actually done a pretty good job uh, on this. Colorado had called it the go uh, the start 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 low go slow campaign uh, around edibles, right? For exactly the reason you mentioned, you don't want somebody and eat 25 milligrams or 30 milligrams of edibles if they're if they're you know uninitiated and they're going to have a really bad experience if they do that, right? The the Maureen Dowd syndrome. Uh, so I think some states have done that. There have been you know awareness campaigns around not driving under the influence. Um, you actually see that here in Illinois. I've noticed a lot when I when I drive down. Uh, you know, the main highway through, uh, through, through, through Chicago, drive down 91, 94. You see it on the, on the, on the you know, electronic ads to, you know, not drive high and stuff like that. So you do see some of it. And you do see some cannabis companies engaging this as well. I give, you know, I, you know Medman, I actually give them a lot of credit for, uh, they, ran a, they ran a pretty awesome campaign uh, last year about the history of hemp and, and legalization and, and, and how it's being normalized. And, and you're seeing more of that. You don't see a lot of ads that cannabis companies run in general because ads are really expensive and like none of us have that much excess capital. Um, something that we're trying to do at, at my company at Forefront and particularly in our mission dispensaries um, is we've really incorporated advocacy into our retail shopping experience. So if you go into you know mission here on the, on, in, in South Chicago, um, we, we have actually uh, two of our walls are a long timeline that explain the history of prohibition, the history of cannabis, the history of prohibition, uh, the more recent movement to end prohibition. And, and it's, and it wraps around one side of the store. So while you're waiting in line to pay for your product, you can, you can educate yourself and learn. Um, we partnered with an organization called the last prisoner project, uh, which is trying to ensure that nobody ever spends time in a jail cell again for cannabis offense. Um, we have a workstation that LPP has provided us a number of, of materials where, uh, people can, uh, customers while they're in the store can donate a little bit of their time and write letters to people who are currently incarcerated for cannabis offenses around the country. And if they're willing to do that, we'll give them points on the rewards cards towards free products, um, uh, towards free products at the store for taking the time to, to do that. We want people to understand that it's a real privilege for them to be able to shift and that they should ready in cages for engaging in that same behavior. And that we as, as, a, as, a, as an industry, as a movement and as consumers have an obligation not to just buy our marijuana, smoke it and be happy, but also to engage in some kind of advocacy, even if it's really small, even if it's a few minutes, uh, that'll help ensure that nobody ever has to suffer the fate of an arrest, prosecution, or you know, God forbid, incarceration for a cannabis offense ever again in this country. Yeah. I'm with you on that one, 100%, uh, Chris Crane. All right, uh, we're running out of time here. I had all these things I wanted to talk about. I guess we'll just have to bring you back to talk about like the impact of COVID-19 on the illegal, on the illegal market. That issue's not going anywhere until we have uh, a vaccine for COVID-19, Chris. I think you know that. Uh, and, of course, the impact that uh, legalized uh, cannabis can have uh, on our tax coffers. Let's close by uh, telling folks about... Uh, the uh, dispensary just alluded to. I read the articles in the newspapers uh, after the unrest in May. Uh, you were shut. You were closed. Talk about uh, how you've been able to reopen. Uh, give us the story and the update on that. Sure. So, yeah, unfortunately, we, we were caught up in, in some of the civil unrest. This was in uh, in June. Um, 
at really at the, at the height of it. Uh, and uh, we did get looted. Our store was broken into. There was quite a bit of damage uh, throughout the store. Um, you know, it was important for us to, to, you know, let folks know that we, you know, we, we didn't really want to be seen as the victims, especially at that time and what was happening. You know, our store is in a neighborhood that is predominantly people of color. Our staff uh, is overwhelmingly be, uh, made up of people of color that, that represent the community that we serve um, and who are very supportive of, of Black Lives Matter and very supportive of the protesters that were out in the street. The, the overwhelming majority organized um we were pretty sure it was an or you know it was, it was an organized attempt to take it and taking advantage of the unrests that was happening and the fact that law enforcement was 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 preoccupied with um the protests and, and so much other looting um there were five or six cars that showed up all at the same time filled with people and then some others that showed up behind them it was a very large mob and unfor- unfortunately we were hit very fortunately, however, uh, our staff was all able to get out before it started, um, so nobody was hurt. Um, none of our staff were, were, were impacted, uh, but the store was badly damaged. It did take us a couple of months uh, before we were able to get back open. Uh, we implemented a number of new security measures, brought in uh, new security uh, doors and, 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 and uh, others. I, I don't want to speak uh, too much of the details because it's a security risk, um, but, uh, but we did put in a whole bunch of new security protocols within the facility that would make it virtually impossible for anybody to um, get in this time or, or at least get very far um, if they were to try again. Um, but we are reopen and uh, serving our customers again. And, you know, I, the, the only other thing I would say about that is we had a lot of questions at the time about, are you going to reopen here? You know, we were in South Chicago. We're in a community that is underserved in general and relatively low income. And so we had a lot of questions from folks about, are you going to go back there? Are you going to look to relocate somewhere else? And for us, it wasn't a question. We're really proud to be a, a part of the solution in the South Chicago neighborhood, um, to be a part of the economic development in that neighborhood. We're you know, arguably the only business on our corridor that brings people in from a wide, uh, a wide radius uh, area um, that brings, you know, this is not a neighborhood that people are coming from you know, far distances to go shopping in general, unless they live in that neighborhood, but people come from all over the South side and, 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 uh, and, and Indiana and the Southern suburbs to our store. And then they shop at other stores while they're there we thought it was really important that we do that. The community really rallied around us after we got after we got looted. Um, we had about 50 people there the, the next morning, uh, almost all community members, some uh, some from businesses around us that just helped pick up the pick up the trash and pick up the pieces and uh, help us clean out the store and clean out the area. And then our staff joined them and we went up the street and helped clean up other businesses in the area. And th- that community just rallied around us so strongly that it just it, it re it, it, it reinvigorated us and redoubled our commitment to uh, being a part of that community and being a part of the economic redevelopment of the area. Oh, that's good news. Yeah, it's just uh, I, I note that there was a, uh, a decision by the, I think it was the Zoning Board of Appeals uh, in Chicago to deny a, 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 use, a license for a dispensary uh, in the, on the Gold Coast. Uh, yes, they, yes, they Bumacan, had, I believe that was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just tale of two cities, if you will. Uh, I, I still don't understand, uh, Chris, the not in my neighborhood attitude toward a dispensary. I, I, I really don't get that at all. Um, well, especially on the Gold Coast there. I mean, it's all bars. It's all bars. Like you're going down the streets, all bars there. It's all liquor. So for somebody to say, like, what is this going to bring a negative element to our neighborhood? Like, you'll probably have fewer people fighting, you know, fighting outside of. You know, outside of bars or fighting outside establishments or throwing up in the streets or acting like, you know, acting like, uh, you know, like like jerks when they're, you know, just too drunk. Where people are going to people go to a dispensary. They don't even have public consumption. They're going to go there. They're going to buy their cannabis. They're going to leave. I just can't imagine. I just I don't understand what motivates someone to say I'm fine with 
you know, with, with excess alcohol and bars everywhere, but I'm not okay with a place where somebody can just go and buy some cannabis and go home. Right. And I've heard the dispensaries actually make neighborhoods safer because of the added security. So absolutely. <laughs> the security requirements for us is, 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 light years beyond what's required for a bar. The security that we're required to have under, under state law is much more like a bank. Uh, I mean, I, I've, literally been, I've literally been in meetings with, uh, with, with towns where we've been looking to locate um, in uh, both here and in other states. I, mean, I remember being in a meeting in a relatively small town in Massachusetts uh, with, the, you know, with, with planning board members and, and the city council members and the chief of police. And the chief of police looked over all our security plans and goes, this is going to be the most secure building in our city, including our police station. Uh, so, yeah, we are being granted that new license in Massachusetts. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. We actually passed our final inspection on our second one today. So we'll have our, our second adult use Massachusetts store open here within the next, uh, within the next few weeks. So we're very excited about that. All right. And Ben, All I right, just want to wrap up. I just want to make sure people realize normal NORML is national organization for the reform of marijuana laws, SSDP students, for a sensible drug policy. And he also spoke about Steve D'Angelo, the founder of LPP, Last Prisoner Project. He actually appears on the second episode of Growing Belushi, Jim Belushi's new reality series that just came out. That's right. So. That's right, wow. yes, those two have become good friends. Yeah. Lisa, that was really well done. I got to give you a lot of credit. You kept track of all the acronyms that we uh, use, the names we used. That's like a that was like a clarification after the interview. I got to give you a lot of credit. You were paying attention. Chris Crane, thank you very much. I'm going to bring you back. Uh, you you know you're, you you Matt, you mix you mix it all up. You could talk politics, which is my show is a political show. So any guy that could talk politics and I was going to say reefer and cannabis is all right by me. We'll, we'll bring you back. And I'll just add this, that the, that vote uh, against on the north side or in the Gold Coast, they're uh, against the cannabis dispensary. It's the last vestiges of reefer madness. Uh, some people on the north side uh, saw reefer madness when they were in uh, health class. So, Chris, I want to thank you very much. Lisa, before I let you leave, anything you want to say about my beloved Chicago reader? Any promotions? Uh, any shout outs you want to give? Anything to help the reader, the greatest newspaper in the history of the world? Uh, we're coming up on our 50th anniversary this fall. The Reader has some great products. We want to thank everyone that's been supporting us through the time of COVID when a lot of the advertisers were unable to continue. ChicagoReader.com slash support. You'll see these wonderful books. Uh, Lior, the music writer, has a new book he just came out with, his best of. Mike Sula, food critic, best of books. Just check it all out there. ChicagoReader.com slash support. All right. Thank you very much, my beloved reader. I've been working for the reader, I think, longer than Chris Crane has been in the cannabis business. How about that? I think Chris was just a young man reading comic books uh, when I started working for the reader. Chris, thank you very much. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Lisa did a great job as always. Thank you very much. All right. All right, D, any updates before we head out that door? Absolutely, I do. I have updates here. I have two updates, both involving the CPS. Let me let go of our guest there. Boy, I tell you that, Chris Crane, very sharp guy. Yeah, sharp guy. We're going to definitely bring him back. Definitely bring Chris Crane back. The guy knows his politics. 
All right. Our first story comes from the Chicago Sun-Times, and it is from one Nadir Issa. Uh, the headline reads, CPS board votes to keep police in schools despite student protests. Chicago school board voted Wednesday to renew its contract with the Chicago Police Department for one year despite the demands of black students who said they felt unsafe learning amid police presence. The decision marked the culmination for the foreseeable future of a very tumultuous year of fierce protests that picked up last fall and rose to a weekly occurrence this summer when the Chicago Board of Education elected not to terminate the police contract in a split vote in June. Activists' hopes remained alive knowing another vote was coming later in the summer. After Wednesday's vote, the issue is unlikely to come before the board again in the coming months. Ben Jarofsky, your thoughts? Well, obviously, the Chicago Board of Education doesn't listen to me. That's been pretty obvious, Steve, for the last 40 years. Uh, my crusade against various boneheaded policies by the Board of Education. I'm going to put aside the issue of whether it's good or bad to have a police officer in a school. I do believe it's a local issue that local schools should uh, determine on their own, working with the students and the parents, and the teachers, and the principal, et cetera, and so forth. And I'm going to talk about the larger policy of school funding. This is the one that really grinds my gears. Uh, grinds my gears, D. <laughs> Broke Chicago public schools are sending their money to the police department. I, Miguel Devaya, I've known you since you were like a community organizer in Humble Park. You know how the game is played? Why are you giving the police department your money? You know that that police department can get that money from the Chicago City Council any time they want, particularly now. Everybody's the law and order era. So you know they're not starving for money. Why are you giving them your money? You need more money for things that matter, like in a classroom. Not look, you know what, D? We're all we're not even in a classroom now, so it's kind of like a moot issue, you know. But it's just like, it's just these budget games that the Board of Education plays year after year. They do the mayor's bidding. I, D, why'd you have to bring this up at the end? I was feeling so good from the Chris Crane interview. Like, oh, what a great, that's a new guest we have on the show. We could bring him in. I'm back to Chicago Public Schools. We're just gonna dangle at the strings of the mayor. Ooh, the mayor, mate. we're gonna go up, we're gonna go down. Yeah, if only my update if only my update were free ice cream and pizza for everyone oh. in Chicago. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and reefer uh. <laughs> oh, in my dreams okay uh and the other story i don't know if this is such a moot point as you said uh this also comes from the chicago sun times looks like a team effort here from john seidel lauren fitzpatrick and also nadir isa uh the headline reads key cps official charged with lying to the fbi uh-oh <laughs> so, folks, if you could have seen that, that little uh-oh was pretty funny. Do uh, that again. Uh, I mean, uh-oh. uh <laughs> The story reads, a key Chicago public schools official with close ties to the CEO. What's that CEO's name again, Ben? Janice Jackson. Yeah, that CEO. Uh, has been charged with lying to the FBI about a controversial private custodial contract worth at least $1 billion. Whoa. And this is what federal court records show. Pedro, Where did this story come out? This came out of nowhere. This is breaking news. Whoosh. 
Uh, Pedro Soto, <laughs> until days ago, chief of staff to CPS CEO Janice Jackson, uh, Jackson, allegedly made a false statement December 17th about whether he had given out, quote, non-public information to an unnamed individual during a bidding process. He allegedly told the FBI, quote, he would want to get information, but I don't think I gave him anything. CPS had been soliciting bids in April 2016 to privatize the management of custodial and engineering services for the entire school district work the feds uh, estimated was worth at least $1 billion with Soto on the committee evaluating the proposal. Uh, the company the FBI was asking about wasn't named. Yeah, I know. More bad news here, Ben. Well, first of all, Troy LaRVA, I know he's going to have something to say about this. The privatization of the Chicago Public Schools, a disgrace, began, started under daily. Ron was so excited. Let's give out contracts. They'll support me. We'll kill union jobs. People will work for less money. Janitors will cut pay. Oh, this is this is how the, uh, this is why my beloved Democratic Party drives me crazy. They thought it was a good idea to move from giving most of the money to the guys who actually did the work, the janitors, and instead giving it to the heads of the companies that employed the janitors. So the janitors made less money, the bosses, the CEOs made more money, and the taxpayers still got reamed. I'm like, if I want to give my tax dollars to Chicago Public Schools, I want to see it go to the people who live in Chicago and live in communities in Chicago. That just makes sense. Uh-uh, not the leaders of Chicago. Oh, privatization, it works so well. It has never worked well, people. You're paying more money. They privatized the Skyway. Just went to the Skyway. I'm on a, oh, Dino, get me started. Oh, boy. I was on the Skyway, dodging potholes wherever I went. Don't these company was going to fix the skyway god are you suckers and sap chicagoans you fall for these privatization schemes all the time and troy he got fired he got fired as a principal from a school on the north side of chicago because he had the courage to speak up about this they cooked up some cockamamie accusation against him you know and jab janice jackson she was the one i remember her she came to the school and she goes we have the evidence because he had the guts to tell it like it is about these privatization schemes. So I'm not surprised. I wish we just went back to the old days. No privatization. You work for the Board of Education. You get a good salary. You get a pension. You have to live in the city of Chicago. You support the communities that you live in. God, we wonder why so many neighborhoods have deteriorated over the last 20 years. Could it be, could it have something to do with the policies that our leaders implement, that they tell us are so great for us? When they don't do anything, they say, they don't lower our taxes. They don't help people find jobs. They don't feed money into neighborhoods that need the money. And now, oh, a scandal. Oh, because you're doling out contracts to private. You know what, D? What? Had it. Had it with the people who run the city of Chicago. Had, had it with them. Had, what did Ricky Hendon say about Ray Lopez? I hate Ray Lopez. <laughs> hate him. That's what he said. I think he likes him now, though. Oh, that's I haven't nice. talked to Ricky in a while. Yeah, they nice. made up. Anyway, privatization. It's terrible, people. Don't fall for it. You fall for it year after year. Those people on the Gold Coast, they go, privatization really works, Ben. You know, uh, my brother-in-law runs a company. Well, I tell and you this guys, is what we see. And that's the lesson you need to learn here. If you want to get anywhere in the city of Chicago, don't be honest. Just be a 
Weird, lying, creepy snake, all right? Uh, Soto, 45 years old, has been charged in a document known as an information, which is typically a signal a defendant intends to plead guilty. According to June 30 staff record, uh, staffing record, Soto was paid $175,000 a year as Jackson's chief of staff. He has worked for the public school system for more than two decades, and currently at the moment, he's crapping his pants, not knowing what I'd to do. I'd rather take... Three nurses for that guy. How many? How many nurses? I. Oh, we couldn't afford nurses. Remember that? That evil Chicago teachers union went on strike for more nurses. How dare they? How dare they? By the way, the teachers. Can we give a shout out to the teachers union? They were doing what the NBA did. They went on strike. It wasn't even. They were getting their money. They went on strike to hire more nurses. Remember all the editorial boards. Where's Mike Girardi when I need him? All Yay for our teachers! Yay for our teachers! Just take the money. Shut up. <laughs> they want to strike for more nurses. The the uh, the NBA, the players in the NBA, shut it down yesterday to try to force some attention on police killing black people. You know, in each case, they it wasn't about the money. So I give a shout out to the Chicago Teachers Union on that one. It's like okay, let's. Hey, let's end privatization in the public schools of Chicago. Let's just have the regular janitors like we always used to have back in the good old days. Yeah. Oh, get me going, D. Yes, Chicago. Even the schools are shady. That's correct. <laughs> hey, we have to end on something positive. Well, something positive I got something thing? positive coming up in about uh, an hour. We're going to be speaking with the one, the only Troy LaRavier. He's the president of the Chicago Principals Association. He's our friend, and man, he's a good interview. So it's going to be available tonight about 7 o'clock at both Chicago Sun Times and Chicago Reader websites, and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. A lot to talk about with Troy. We haven't talked to him in a few months. Uh, he had a birthday a few days ago. We'll talk about that, maybe. Maybe as well, but it's Troy LaRavier tonight on the Ben Jarofsky show, people. It's our part two. That's good news, That's, right? That is very good news. That's well done, D. I got to give you a lot of credit uh, for f- finally doing that. And, <laughs> stay away from him, be easy. Stay away. Now, me saying that, be right. The phone will ring right now. Oh, yeah, this is WBZ. Uh, Dr. D, I'm looking for. Anyway, I want to thank Lisa Solomon. Chris Crane, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, about without whom the show cannot be possible. And as Troy LaRambier, Chris Crane, Lisa Solomon, and Janice Jackson will all tell you back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Yeah, we haven't used that one in a while. Keep yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Remember to follow the Ben Jarofsky Show on social media at Benny J Show, B E N N Y, the letter J Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us an email, Benny J Show at gmail.com, and you can leave us a voicemail. 708-658-4788. 708-658-4788. Download tonight's interview with Troy LaRavier, won't you?
face coverings. That's correct. But what about the funding that you said federal funding for the uh, mail-in voting? We don't want them to do mail-in ballots because it's going to lead to total election fraud. So we don't want them to do mail-in ballots. We don't want anyone to do mail-in ballots. Now, if somebody has to mail it in because they're sick or, by the way, because they live in the White House and they have to vote in Florida and they won't be in Florida, if there's a reason for it, that's okay. If there's a reason. But if there's another, we don't want we don't want to take any chances with fraud in our elections.